Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. This week's episode is going to be a recording of an interview we did with uh, Matt Brunig for a recent uh, Prospect Telethon. We talk about the Nordic labor system, what's going on with Tesla and Elon Musk there, and the ongoing debate about whether or not the economy is actually good. Turns out it's kind of complicated. Anyway, hope you enjoy and I'll get that started right now. Cool, yeah. So so um thanks again for for coming on the 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 program here and I should note, you know, given that this is a, you know, fundraiser, we're we're encouraging people to donate. You know, this is a small uh magazine and you know, as Matt, you would appreciate we have very low overhead, you know, trying to stretch our our journalism mm-hmm. dollar to the How utmost. do they donate? Do they Buy stickers on the YouTube stream, or what's what's the game here? <laughs> you go to uh, prospect.org slash telethon, I think is the link, and we got a little Act Blue set page, uh, Act Blue page set up there. So we're we're a ways to our our, our end of year goal, but yeah. So um, thanks to anybody who's donated, or 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 if you're thinking about it, well, now's the time. So. Um, in the meantime, uh, Matt, I thought we could sort of kick our discussion off here and talk a little bit about the uh, the labor situation in the Nordic countries. Um, you know, you uh, uh, you know, I, I want to get to Tesla, um, you know, mm-hmm. and then and what's going on there. But I think you know, as a sort of background to the discussion, there's a there's a famous story you wrote some years ago about when McDonald's came to Denmark. And Mm -hmm. so maybe you could start off by telling uh, viewers what happened during that particular um, instance. Yeah. So the background for this is, you know, uh, there's all these stories that are written. uh, I think there was one written in the New York Times and there was one in the Washington Post and AOC liked to talk about in in Denmark, uh, McDonald's workers make $22 an hour and you could find all this stuff. And no one ever really explained why that was. It was just kind of like, well, you know, everyone there, they're so generous. You know, this is such generous social democratic society. And what at least that was the sense you got from it. Um, you know, they would mention that they were unionized, but they didn't. There's like a great story that leads up to it. And I would read these, you know, reports and I'm thinking, man, I, I don't know if I were a journalist, I might I might tell this story. And then eventually I said, OK, well, let me take a crack at it. So. Um, basically in the 1980s, 1981, McDonald's opened its first store in Denmark. Uh, they were globalizing at that point and they were in 20 countries and they, uh, they had avoided unions in all the countries except for Sweden where they had just ca- came in on day one and said, okay, yeah, we're going to have to deal with the Swedish unions, uh, which is funny. That's, you know, a little, uh, <laughs> a little insight into the Nordic labor situation, um, you know, for starters, uh, Sweden did, uh, I didn't put this in my piece, but there were uh, some, um, there were some like, uh, bombings of McDonald's in Sweden. Um, but I think that was sort of like an anti-imperial, uh, sentiment more than an anti-McDonald's sentiment, but, uh, I guess, you know, they decided to deal with them. So, but when they went into Denmark, uh, they, they, I guess they didn't really have this notion of a Nordics maybe. And they thought, well, we'll do, we don't have to do that in Denmark. So they didn't follow the uh, agreement in Denmark. And the way these uh, things are organized over there, 
is, uh, you know, all the workers in a particular kind of industry broadly defined, in this case, it would have been hotel and restaurant workers, they come together, they have their union, and then all the employers come together, and they have their employer organization, and they uh, scratch out a deal that covers the whole sector. And it's, uh, you know, it's not like a contract. It's not like here where we have collective bargaining agreements. And if you violate it, you can, uh, you know, sue for breach of contract, which usually goes to an arbitrator. It's not that kind of situation. It's more just kind of, all right, so here's our deal. And uh, if you don't follow it, you know, we have ways of enforcing it ourselves informally, uh, the unions. Um, and so McDonald's comes in and says, well, it looks, it says, it says we don't have to follow it. So we're not going to. And for a few years, uh, the Danish unions would come to them and say, hey, like, no, you do have to follow this. And uh, they just said, no, we're not going to follow it. <clears throat> and so in the late 1980s, what was in 1988, they, uh, you know, enough was enough. They had made some efforts to get them to understand this is our labor model. This is how it works. And so they called a, a strike. And, you know, the way they strike over there, they don't just say, OK, all the McDonald's workers uh, go out on strike uh, and, you know, pick it and, you know, we'll hold out until, uh, you know, it works because, you know, that's just not necessarily the most effective way to do things. Uh, you could probably find replacement workers at McDonald's. It's it's not, you know, it's an entry level job. It's designed to be doable by people with no labor market experience. That's the kind of how it works. So instead, they start calling the sympathy strike. So any entity, especially in the logistics world that touches McDonald's, they go to them and they say, stop, stop doing anything for McDonald's. Um, so you had what? What were some of the ones? The uh, printers refused to print any McDonald's like cups and menus. The construction workers stopped building McDonald's stores. Um, the dock workers wouldn't unload any McDonald's equipment off the boats. That's the one they really love. They always go to the docks first, um, which makes sense, I guess, because that's where they get a lot of their stuff. But you go to the docks and you just say, hey, don't touch any other things. Um the typographers union wouldn't make any McDonald's ads and put them in newspapers. Um, so across the board, the food and beverage workers wouldn't make the McDonald's food. And so uh, within a few months, McDonald's uh, gave up. There were also, and I didn't include this in my piece, there were some um, sort of international components to it as well. So in Finland, they were striking McDonald's in solidarity with the Danish strike against McDonald's. Um, there was a consumer boycott on my piece about it. I, I have these old photos where they're showing uh, uh, a dog pissing on the McDonald's logo. Um, and it says boycott McDonald's. Boycott only has one T in, Dan in, in Danish, I guess. Um, those are fun pictures. Um, I'd love to get that logo. But yeah, so gotta, after a few... You got to love uh, the cross-species solidarity, you know? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> there's more a, of that there's one picture where there's this kid he looks like he's like 17 and he's got this boycott mcdonald's placard and it's just a dog pissing on the golden arches and there's this old lady kind of looking at him just sort of she looks a little shocked by the whole thing um and um yeah they just gave up and then they followed the agreement and they've been following the agreement ever since and so it's not that you know mcdonald's in denmark is super generous uh as an entity, it's just that all the restaurants and hotels are governed by this same agreement. And so everyone who works a McDonald's-like job is going to be getting the 22 an hour. This was in 2021. So, Yeah, I, I, I think, um, yeah, naive outsiders like like myself, for instance, when I when I went to uh, Finland as part of a reporting project that was that was done jointly with the prospect and 
um, a people's policy project, uh, your, your, um, outfit, Matt, you know, you go and you talk to these, uh, union guys that were, that, that worked at the, the grocery store co-op, the S group, and they describe these very cordial labor relations, you know, mm-hmm. that's like, ah, they're, they're, they always sit down at the bargaining table in good faith. They open up the books and, and you really don't have strikes hardly ever. But it, it seems like the, the important lesson from the McDonald's story is that back of that is an implicit threat of overwhelming force that should yeah. somebody really try to like go hard and, you know, bust the union and cut wages down as far as possible, then they would be devastated, you know, at, at every point in the whole business system, right? Yeah, I think uh, it, it can be. It's a very simplistic to think, hey, the strength of the union is going to be indicated by how much strike activity there's going on. I think that is a belief most people have on the U.S. left and I don't know, maybe more generally. And, and it makes sense, right? You're like, well, that's what unions do, right? They strike. They do labor disputes and conflicts and so on. So when you see them out picketing, like people were celebrating in the summer, for instance, the what was it like strike the strike summer or wasn't there like strike tober or something like that and it was we had uh what we had the the writers were out on strike and then the auto workers and there was a people thought ups might go out on strike and there was all these things and everyone's like real excited about that and that's fine i i was excited about it too but you only have a strike if both sides think they can win you know, like this, you can only you only have a conflict if both sides are willing to say, you know what, I bet if I stick this out, I can actually win and like do better for me. If you are so dominant that the other side knows they can't win, then you're never going to get pushed to a strike or only rarely going to get pushed to a strike. You know what I mean? So in a way, strikes, they're indicative of union power because they show that you can mobilize people to strike, but they're also indicative of of unions not having so much power that they don't need to strike right it's kind of like Lao Tzu's art of war you know if you, if you can win before the battle even commences and not need it then that's better right and and that, to be clear can you clarify Matt um, how the wage increases and those things come to play it's like every couple of years they're mandated to come together and um, talk negotiate about what labor improvements are needed something like that uh, yeah they have you know they, their deals expire um, so they have expiration dates, even though they're not formal deals. And I would say typically it's every three years. Um, sometimes they'll reopen them in the middle of a thing, uh, middle of a, a contract term. But uh, the kind of classical approach is you have this the so-called tripartite uh, negotiation. So you have the employers association, you have the uh, union, and then you also have the government involved. And you know at the at the peak, these things were being organized sort of centrally, like almost all the sectors at the same time and the government at the same time, uh, recognizing that they needed to kind of come to an accord across the whole economy. And it's very neat in that, you know, you don't normally think of the government as needing to be involved, but the government can also affect the distribution of wages and stuff like that through taxes, right? So sometimes you'll see them make these deals. And this happened in Finland um, of a few years ago. It was during kind of like their double dip recession after the Great Recession, um, where they will make deals where it's like, okay, so uh, the workers will agree to give up a certain holiday in exchange. The 
uh, government is going to cut the payroll tax on the employee side, but move some over to the employer side. And, you know, so say everything's on the table, not just uh, we're coming up with our own collective bargaining agreement, but also the the rules of the of the system. Um, and that makes sense, you know, because the collective bargaining agreement also is essentially just part of the rules of the system. You know, it's not we kind of would view it as a private agreement that exists in either separate or kind of in it nestled inside of the system. And there it seems like there's at least practically an understanding that this is basically the same thing as law or it's 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 on the same footing. So we want to make sure all these things move in the right direction, you know. Um, so let's talk, Matt, about, uh, this, the, the situation with Tesla and, um, yeah. So like just a, a quick bit of background. So, so back in October, I believe after years and years of trying to get a, um, you know, cl- collective bargaining agreement out of, out of Tesla, which is very standard, I think cover like 90% of all workers in Sweden, they decide they're going to go on strike and, um, Tesla doesn't, you know, play ball. And so that sparks sympathy strikes in Sweden. And now uh, it's spread to Denmark, Norway and Finland. So can you tell us about, you know, sort of what's going on there? Yeah, you might have some details. I I don't on some of the other countries. But um, yeah, so Tesla comes into Sweden, decides it's not going to follow the agreement. Very similar to McDonald's. Initially, the mechanics go out on strike because that's the uh, the people who I guess would have been covered by the agreement. Um, and then right after that, I guess, you know, in these kind of staggered two or four week periods, you just start all the dominoes start falling. So the dock workers, of course, you go there first and they say, all right, we're not going to unload any Tesla cars. Um, then the electricians say that they're not going to repair any Tesla charging stations when they break. Um, what were some of the other oh, cleaners say they're not going to clean any Tesla offices? Always that, that one always gets me. Uh, those, I think the one that, that pissed off uh, Elon Musk the most was the the postal workers wouldn't deliver the license plates. <laughs> yeah, that one got really interesting. The po- the postal workers uh, said they're not going to deliver the license plates, and of course you can't run without the license plates. Elon, uh, the Tesla then says, "Well, we're going to sort of pick up the license plates on our own." The postal service then says, um, well, they want to pick it up from the factory. The factory says to them, well, we've got this contract with the postal service where we this is the only way that we're allowed to deliver, you know, uh, the license plates to you. Like we have an exclusive agreement with this postal service, um, Post Nord. And then Post Nord says, well, um, you know, we we're not going to uh you know so they're like can we pick it up from the factory no the factory gives it to post nord well can we pick it up from post nord no by law by statute we have to send it to you by mail and so it's just sort of trapped in this bizarre legal legal limbo and they actually went to court and apparently one court said yeah you can go pick them up from the factory another court said you can't um so it's just it's you know it's sort of a mess. Um, I know the Norway. I know one of the Norwegian unions because Tesla is very big in Norway. Obviously, uh, almost every car that's sold in uh, Norway is electric. Uh, so Tesla is a big deal there. They uh, they 
basically announced that if they were going to try to circumvent the ports, uh, the blockade in the ports in Sweden by going through Norway, that the Norwegians would start blockading their ports as well. But what 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 else was there in the other countries? I think from what I've seen, it's also the 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 dock workers in in Denmark and now Finland. They they haven't started. I think in Finland they say December twentieth, so day after tomorrow. Um, yeah, the uh, uh, trying to do an end run, you know, around the Sweden blockade. And yeah, I think um, important to to emphasize, as you said, Matt, the you know the you might think these are tiny countries, you know, like a combined population of what, like 20, 22 million or something. 20 million. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't be a huge market, but yeah, as you said, that's a a huge proportion of the vehicles sold in those countries are, are Tesla's. I think in Sweden, the, the, the model S was the best selling car in the country by a huge margin. Um, making up, you know, like a quarter of the entire market. And it's only posed to increase as as all of these, you know, Norway's is the first, they sell the the most as a proportion, but then all the other Nordics are just behind them in the EV transition. And um I think conversely important to emphasize that this the the contract dispute was with like a hundred and thirty mechanics in Sweden. Yeah. You know, a a a pitiful um fraction and and I think perhaps speaks to the amount of the the ideological stakes of this you know that that Tesla wants to be able to play by its own rules and not follow any of these collective bargaining agreements that sort of underpin the whole Nordic labor system they just want to barge in and do American style ultra capitalism and I think probably that may um, explain why the reaction has been so so stern um you know, for, for, from all these different countries, because they see like this is possibly a threat, a, a, a camel's nose under the door for every company. If Tesla can get away yes. with it, then who, who else? Yeah. They understand the importance of the, you know, the broader war. Um, and not just for foreign companies, but even for local companies. I know one of the uh, unions that's doing the solidarity action, they had, they put up a FAQ on their website, you know, explaining what was going on and it was asked you know yeah and one of the questions was just sort of like what are you doing this for and and they said well you know this is how our you know one of course solidarity but two this is how our nordic labor model works and so we're gonna it was very bloodless it, it, it reminded me of the point you were making before about like people not recognizing the radicalism because uh you know just even when they are striking it you read the stuff and it's not exciting at all it's very like well you know we have this system and we really need to protect it so and that's it um and similarly with the small numbers i mean one of the one of the most interesting strikes that uh occurred here in the last i don't know five or six years was the finnish postal worker strike where i think it was something like 400 package handlers who worked in the finnish postal service they were they were trying to move them from one agreement to another so this is funny it's not even well we're just going to do our own thing it's that they were trying to be a little crafty and saying oh no actually you were, you guys were misclassified as being subject to this collective agreement actually you should be subjected to this other collective agreement that pays less um, and so they went on strike and then the ports, the airplanes, the buses, um, they all went down and eventually, of course, they put them back on the old contract 
and then the uh, sort of coup de gras was the prime minister resigned um as a result of all this because it was a state-owned enterprise so i thought perhaps you know that this would be a good some good background for an explanation of how american labor law works like like what are the um relevant differences here uh with with like the the um structure of you know union activity in the united states yeah so you know i mean prior to taft hartley you could do a lot of this stuff um but uh taft hartley was this legislation that was passed in 1945 i think um, but the original think, national yeah. labor relations act you would have been allowed to do this kind of stuff um you also managers were also able to unionize under the original NLRA. People don't realize that um, they they unionize over there in the Nordics. The managers do, um, but uh, they outlawed that both of those things in Taft Hartley. And um, you, you, if you engage in a secondary boycott like that, it's not protected, um, and you can be fired. Um, and so unions haven't been able to do that. I know. Um, Trumpka, who was the the AFL CIO head for a long time, he uh, he was a labor lawyer. He wrote uh, his uh, sort of law school note on this, and he he was he had a very radical law school note, and he was saying that he wanted that he would prefer to just get rid of the NLRA. And the upshot of that was really just if we got rid of the NLRA, then we would be able to do these secondary boycotts and solidarity strikes, and that would give us way more power than we lost by, you know, not having unions sort of officially recognized by the NLRB and all that process. So that was a big hit, certainly. And now, ultimately, I think he sort of walked that back practically in, in his real life. But that was as a hard charging uh, law student, his his opinion on it and you can see why he reached that conclusion. You made a great point in your piece, though, Matt, when people say, oh, just, you know, it's so simple, just change the law. Um, but you point out that they're going to have that backwards. It's not that it does help to make sympathy strikes legal, but uh, it takes having a strong labor movement to get the law changed to do something like that. And it's probably symbiotic, right? But like yeah. one one is is more important in a way, right? Yeah. And to stop it. I mean, you know, why didn't the union, you know, the union should have gone hard in 1945 to stop the to have Hartley Act, you know, I, I'm not criticizing them. I hope no one's offended. Uh, but uh, you were seeing that right now in Finland. They, uh, the There's a conservative government and they are proposing a package of labor market refor reforms. So one of which includes some restrictions on, on solidarity striking. Um, but mostly it's focused on cutting unemployment benefits, uh, which is funny because we don't even think of that as a, as a major labor issue here for some reason. But the conservatives there are trying to cut unemployment benefits and and make some of these other labor market changes. And uh, the unions have been doing political strikes for months. They had a big one actually earlier this week or last week on Thursday. They had a, a big strike uh, that was focused on all the transport workers, so all the buses and trains and stuff. Um, and it's sidelined a huge, huge amount of uh, workers. And they just do these strikes for a day or two, disrupt a lot of stuff, go back to work and just kind of just keep the pressure on to the government to, to 
try to get them to abandon these labor market reforms. Or I guess officially their demand is that they want to be at the table to negotiate them. Um, so, and they did that in, uh, well, uh, 2018 or something like that. We had a similar, much more smaller stakes thing where they were trying to make it easier. Then the Finnish conservative government at the time was trying to make it easier to fire workers in, uh, small, for small employers to fire workers. And the Finnish unions went on strike and did all sorts of stuff. And they, they completely backtracked on that. So it's like you said, it's, you know, it's not as if, the conservatives in these countries are, don't try this stuff. It's just that for the time being, at least, the unions, uh, even politically, are strong enough to say, you know, even when their parties are not in power, that it's just they're not going to allow it. So, yeah. And that the Swedish union, because of what you, the point you made earlier about how uh, more successful labor markets don't need to constantly do direct action, uh, that they have like a, a $1 billion fund because they, they never have to like, Use oh, it yeah. Because, right? yeah. And so for these 130 workers, they're paying 130% of their salary right now while they're not working, right? Yeah, yeah. And the Financial Times, I didn't even know this detail, but the Financial Times had a report about that. Yeah, they're paying 130% of their salary, but that's that the 30% is the like employer side payroll tax that they would normally charge. And so that goes into making sure that they get all their pension credits and help, you know, like all that stuff. Um, so it's a, it's really more like a hundred percent. I've, I finally figured out it's a hundred percent. And then the 30% yeah. covers the, but, uh, but yeah, and they were interviewing the, the labor, the, the union guy there. And he was saying that, yeah, we can, we have a giant strike fund and we hardly ever use it. And we, we can, and I guess indicating would be willing to support these striking mechanics for, for decades on their strike fund. So <laughs> It so is. why why is Musk engaging in this? Then we, we kind of hinted at the broader kind of uh, domino effect. Maybe there's there's ten thousand workers in manufacturing Teslas in Berlin, and um, you know obviously the region stands you know in solidarity with workers across uh, the area there. But like what besides being an idiot, what how, how does what what's Musk's deal with picking this fight? Do you think? I think it's just that, honestly. I mean, he, he the only comment I've seen him make on it was on Twitter. He responded to someone who was talking about that legal problem with the license plates. And he just said, this is insane. Um, but I'm sure it's that situation. Um, you know, yeah. he's he's a go. big personality, doesn't want to do it. Um, McDonald's is the same kind of thing, except for, you know, with McDonald's, because it's it's not like a personality directed company. Eventually they probably give in to reason. I, I'd be, I'm interested to see what he does, I guess, because he's so irrational or he makes decisions that don't, you know, like the, the decision to buy Twitter and then kind of tank it was not for his, was not good for his bottom line, you know? Yeah. It's interesting to me, Matt, that, that, uh, you know, if you're approaching this from a sort of like neoliberal efficiency framework or, or like a sort of technical, you know, minimize disruptions in the production process uh, lens, like it certainly seems like the Nordic model is way better than the American model. You know, where we had these strikes in, you know, in Hollywood that just shut the entire film and television industry down for uh, what, what was seven, nine months, something like that. And eventually, you know, ended in a, in a victory for the workers. But it's like, if, if you could like speed up that process by, um, 
preventing these sort of like knockdown drag out fights um you know it'd be good for gdp or stuff like gdp that. yeah no i, I mean that they'll, they'll that's you know they'll calculate that uh and it's yeah it's a double edged sword like on the one hand being able to cause these drops in production is what gives you the leverage right a production halting strike works because it takes a blow to the company's bottom line but also takes a blow to gdp um but you know gdp is what you get to consume as well <laughs> so you'd like to keep that gdp up and just get a bigger share of it rather than uh knock it down in order to get a larger future share um but sometimes you know you got to do what you got to do so but in an ideal setup yeah you're so strong that you can get the share that you want without having to bring down the size of the pie all the time by going out on strike you know the strike for the writers it was exciting you know i loved watching it and whatever but i'm i would imagine many of them faced uh hardships uh and it would have been better if they could have just been working on the terms that they would have preferred to work on during that time you know yeah and it does seem um you know it's like uh, the nordics is like if you play ball and give the unions what they want then you could still do business there mcdonald's is still in denmark you know it's it's not totally inhospitable to to foreign companies you just got to you know pay what would be regarded as extortionate wages and benefits um but yeah well and they they it's an interesting setup because it's it's not i mean the companies do seem to be a bit less profitable certainly um but you can make decent profit and and what they have done also is they compress the wage scale and so you know yeah mcdonald's worker will make uh you know double what they make here but an engineer might make 20% less or 30% less than they make here um and they've done this through this solidaristic wage bargaining so across a large enterprise it may not net out to be a higher wage bill you know because if you're paying your higher paid workers less and your lower paid workers more that that can net out to the same same thing now of course it depends on the you know the firm and their particular labor setup you might have a high concentration of of highly paid workers or lowly paid workers. And that can create a slightly different dynamic. Yeah. This could be a good transition, Ryan. I don't know if you wanted to, to talk any more about uh, Tesla, but um, to your piece, Matt, about the discourse around uh, Biden's good economy or is the economy in the U S good, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, you point out, well, that really means that depends on what you mean by good economy. It depends on your, your politics, your ideology, and a lot of other things. And then you go on to, to disambiguate uh, a few different questions that people are actually uh, discussing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I jumped into that dispute um, after watching it for about a month, mostly because I just was very irritated by the, the tone the condescension towards the left. And I thought, well, I don't know. I haven't really been saying too much about economy bad, but I have been privately stewing over the welfare state stuff, which is, of course, my main interest. So, uh, but, you know, we had from uh, 2000 to, you know, to 2021, late 2021, uh, different things expired at different times. But we had, starting with the CARES Act in 2020, uh, you know, a set of welfare programs that were established or expanded 
Um, and not just welfare programs. Uh, I haven't even, I didn't even write about this, but you had things like the eviction moratorium, the foreclosure moratorium, the student debt pause, um, other stuff like that, that have, has come to an end. And I think most people kind of overlook that because they think, well, that was temporary stimulus. So like that was good. It was like a good temporary stimulus and they, it just kind of gets put into the good category. But, you know, temporary stimulus is also the same thing as expanding a program and then cutting it. You know, that's that's, you know, two ways to describe the same thing. And if we just look at the cuts, they've been pretty bad. And the labor market, you know, has been pretty, pretty solid, you know, at least, you know, it's still not as good as a Nordic labor market, as I'll point out. But, um, you know, the employment rate's gone up and we've seen some wage compression. Uh, wages at the bottom have grown faster than wages at the top. And uh, inflation took a big bite out of that for a year or so, but inflation has come down. Um, so that's pretty exciting. But on the welfare side of things, things have gotten a lot worse. And what I thought of doing, you know, because I'm such a policy genius, was what if since we can put all of these things in dollar terms for the most part, what if we just tried to find the net of these things, right? Wages are up, uh, employment is up, uh, but welfare is down. And so what if we put all that into one big spreadsheet and tried to see what came out the other side? And when you do that, something like 58% of Americans saw their real income decline uh, last year. Only 42% saw their real income increase. And so throw that out there and uh, left quite a ripple <laughs> in the discourse. Uh, lots of coverage from there. Uh, I would say mostly of the dismissive variety. Um, but And that comes then with the subsequent pieces where, how, well, how are they dismissing this point? Are they saying it's untrue? Are they saying my calculations are wrong? Is it misleading? Oh, no, what they're saying is that's not Biden's fault. What he was never going to be able to make these things permanent. What about mansion? What about sim cinema? And that's fine. I I didn't say it was his fault. You know, ultimately, uh, there's a lot of actors in the system, a lot of veto points in the system. It's kind of hard to assign blame uh, or they'll shift to the even more uh, amorphous question of why do people tell survey takers what they take, what they tell them? Um, and I, you know, your guess is as good as mine on that, but, uh, <clears throat> those are not the, those are not the questions I was attempting to answer. I was attempting to answer just a question. Like if you wanted to say not only the economy is bad in like a snapshot sense, because, you know, it's capitalistic or it's not social democratic enough, or we didn't get, you know, the Bernie style social democracy or whatever, not only is it just kind of bad as a general assessment, but actually things have gotten somewhat worse over the past year or two could you make the case for that and i think you definitely can with the welfare state cuts as the driving force behind that argument so and those are very different points like support biden because he did uh good things and made the economy better versus support biden because he did the best he could even if things got worse like those are very like it's an important distinction right yeah. Yeah. Like I, in one of my pieces, I said, look, I've been doing this for a long time. And normally, you know, we would say, hey, um, yeah, some things have gotten worse and things are not as good as they could be. But it's not the Democrats fault. It's not Biden's fault. You know, 
it takes 60 votes to pass anything. Uh, so, you know, it's just kind of that thing. Our hands are tied. And guess what? What are your other option? Trump's going to be way worse over there. That's how it usually goes. That's what I'm used to. And, you know, those are not bad arguments per se. Um, but that's not instead of going with that, we're getting you guys are so stupid. You know, the economy is great. It's wonderful. And you guys are economically illiterate, bad faith morons. That that was the sense I got from it. And so uh, I don't know if nothing else, just shifting the argument to, you know, away from that and having people acknowledge that, yeah, OK, you kind of have a point with the welfare state stuff, but you shouldn't be talking like this. And, you know, because uh, Aaron Dube's a good example of a very good faith interlocutor. And, you know, what he keeps saying is, look, if you if you guys are going to harp on the fact that when these programs expire, it causes a lot of suffering. That's, you know, that makes me uncomfortable because um, it's not that we're going to get good permanent programs. It's just that people will stop doing good temporary programs because we'll get nothing okay you know that's yeah if you don't reward these you know centrists then they won't even do it to begin with right yeah temporary is better than nothing and you guys are really playing with nothing here um if you go down this route like okay i mean that's fine that's reasonable but as long as you acknowledge my argument is good that's all i really want in this world you know yeah, there. I mean, to to your point, you know, like one of the specific things that happened um, in in what twenty twenty two was the expiration of the 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 Biden uh, child tax credit and um, the end of the the Medicaid disenrollment pause or whatever, like and mm-hmm. allowing states to throw um, people off their. Uh, off their state programs again, which was, I don't even remember how many. It was like 10 million people or something got kicked yeah, off of Medicaid. Yeah, it's up to 11, I think, now. They're still going. They're still they're still pulling people off these rolls, so. Yeah, that, yeah. And and a lot of it is just because they, they, they needed to re-enroll, you know, and they didn't jump through the paperwork hoops, which is a big pain in the neck. Um, yeah, well, well, and the, 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 the background context of that is that they actually could not really figure out who was on what you might call COVID Medicaid and who was on normal Medicaid. They administratively couldn't really figure that out. It had kind of gotten all mixed up, which makes sense. Um, and so it's just sort of, you kind of take a stab at who you think is on COVID Medicaid, and then you give them a chance to sort of defend themselves and say, no, I'm on real Medicaid. But it turns out that, you know, that kind of like burden shifting where you go, I think you're on COVID Medicaid. We're going to disenroll you unless you file A, B, and C. And then they like, one, did you even get it to the right address? Two, do they know what the hell they're even asking them to do? You know, and so that's the situation you're in. It's 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 worse, I think, than people even realize because it would be one thing to just be like, all right, we know the people who are on COVID Medicaid. You guys got to go, go buy an Obamacare plan. I don't know. Instead, they're kind of just, picking people that they suspect are on COVID Medicaid and then saying, you know, you're guilty until proven innocent on that. A similar thing going on with the uh, unpause of the student debt, right? They, they, they didn't really know, like, the records weren't really good for a lot of people. So like, wait a minute, uh, we think, okay, yeah, debt, debts are forgiven. You're, you're fine. Uh, you're not. And then it's, it's just a nightmare, right? I've, I've heard, certainly. And I, I can't imagine if you've gone that long without collecting 
what kind of problems have arised in the meantime. Maybe talking about the 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 political sort of calculation here. Um the uh you know in 2021 when they passed the American Rescue Plan, right? That was the Biden expanded child tax credit. And the thinking of I think the the liberal wonks who designed that credit to last for only one year is that the the population of people getting it um and it was uh to to be clear actually in case people aren't aren't familiar with this the the way that it worked was that it now had no uh phase in meaning that if if you're a parent and you and you made zero income then you were still eligible for the whole thing in theory um mm-hmm. and that you you used to have to make money you know it it would it would phase in you know according to the more money you make uh the more you get up to a, a up to a certain point um and and it was also uh, doled out monthly. So it was like a sort of like ass backwards version of a Nordic child allowance. And, yeah. it, and it, they increased the amount by a thousand a year. Those were the three. Right. And th- this, I think, you know, it was influenced by a lot of the lefty discussion of child allowances and, you know, saying like, stop giving people tax credits that you calculate at the end of the year, put the money in their hand directly from the government and try to reduce the administrative burden. They kind of screwed up that part. But, you know, the thinking was people will get this benefit. They'll like the benefit. So it will be, it will be too difficult to, to get rid of it. They'll have to make it permanent. And that, that was sort of reasoning that I had advocated for myself in the past, frankly, though this is a fairly small bore version of it. And then it didn't work because Joe Manchin thought we're going to be spending. Uh, he said that the, that the poor people will be spending the child tax credit money on drugs. Um, I don't know yeah. why you wouldn't worry about the regular tax credit, uh, regular child tax credit, which still exists. You could still spend that money on drugs if you want. And he appears unconcerned about that possibility. But nevertheless, that was his rationale. Um, you know, what What do you think about the political uh, uh, reasoning there? Was that was it foolish to, to take that risk that it gone permanent from the start and, and have to, like, raise more taxes or whatever to get it past the Congressional Budget Office or take from other priorities? Um, or was it just the fluke of Joe Manchin being a, a stupid jerk? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think obviously in hindsight, it was a mistake to not make it permanent. Um, you know, I mean, there it, it is important to distinguish between, um, you know, we have this notion of welfare stickiness. That's a general theory, right? Which is the one you're invoking, which is the once the benefit is there, it's hard to undo. We saw that with uh, Obamacare, for instance. They were wanting to repeal that uh, under Trump, and it didn't happen. Now, of course, that also seemed to be driven by maybe an idiosyncratic personality or two, like McCain, though there may have been some other people who would have voted against it. Um, So, you know, welfare stickiness is a general thing. This one is a little bit different than an ordinary welfare stickiness, though, because usually you have the program in place, and then you have to take affirmative steps affirmative steps to repeal it here it was set up to automatically repeal and you had to take affirmative steps to uh halt that so the default seems to matter right if the default of if yeah. inaction defaults to the program remains then the odds of it remaining are pretty high. If inaction defaults to the program uh, going away, then that may reverse. So that would be one of my takeaways there is you don't want to make it so that you ha- people have to act 
to avoid repeal. You want to make it so they have to act to repeal, especially if you're dealing with something like the Senate with the 60 votes and, you know, all that stuff that they do there to jam things up. Um, But other than that, you know, it's funny. The polling on the CTC was kind of like all over the map. Uh, You could definitely get some polls where most people were saying they didn't want they didn't want the expansion extended. I don't know because the polls were never very clear on this because the CTC has been around since 1996. And Trump ex- actually expanded the CTC. He increased it from 1,000 to 2,000. That was a Rubio and Lee uh, kind of intervention. So it's not as if, uh, you know, <laughs> was there a big backlash to that? You, you know, like were people unhappy? With, you never heard anything about it um about people being mad about it and then and then biden did the same thing except you know he increased it a thousand just like trump did but he got rid of the phase in which meant it went to the poor like you pointed out now you might say oh that's the thing but i mean i'm pretty skeptical of that in general how many people follow policy well enough to say oh they got rid of the phase and do they know a phase in exists do they even <laughs> that level of detail it seems uh uh, it seems strange to suppose most people have that, but then also separately when in some of the polls, they would ask them about the details because like, like I said, there, there were multiple changes the the amount increased, the phase in was eliminated. It was paid out monthly. Like they would ask them, like, what is the thing you like or dislike? And when you ask people separately about the phase in, like, are you, would you like to keep this going to the poor that actually pulled better than the, than the other stuff. So you know, I don't know. What can you say? And then and then because uh, <clears throat> Eric Levitz had a piece where he was saying, oh, people, people are not going to policymakers are not going to be happy with this welfare state argument. The one I line I laid out just a little bit before about how people maybe are not happy about these cuts, um, because if you look at the CTC polling, it was not all that enthusiastic towards the CTC. But, you know, to my mind, uh, maybe the conventional wisdom was right all along. Right. We initially thought it would be ridiculously stupid to cut this kind of benefit um, because, uh, you know, it would cause people to be upset. And maybe that when that was posed hypothetically in polls, it wasn't reflected. But then when you actually did it and, you know, doubled child poverty you know, and, and caused all this hardship, maybe maybe then people became a little more dismayed, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I think the the general point about how it's virtually impossible to pass anything you know, uh, uh, the, the, the goal moving forward should be to like, get the, get the biggest bite and, you know, biggest, most permanent thing you can, you can shove through our, our, our creaking anachronistic system. Um, and, and don't, don't require Joe Manchin to take two votes if at all possible to avoid. Um, there's a, a person in the chat, apparently, uh, uh, Matt, who, who has a he wants to know if you've written about the Meidner plan. Um, so maybe you could explain briefly uh, what the Meidner plan was and uh, what happened to it. Yeah, I have written about it. If you go to peoplespolicyproject.org, search for Meidner plan. Um, there are many, many articles uh, about it, some by me, some by others. The Minor Plan was a plan in the 1970s uh, by, uh, you know, credited to Rudolf Meidner, who was an economist at the Swedish uh, Trade Union Confederation, uh, I think S.A.K. Uh, And it was kind of their 
Well, in retrospect, we sort of treat it as this was their last, this was going to be their final step into uh, full-blown socialism, right? So if you think about a social democratic reformist path to socialism, uh, you know, one of the the knocks against it is it never gets there. You know, <laughs> we get some welfare state stuff, we get some unions, maybe a little public ownership, but we never get all the way there. Well, this was this was going to be the final nail in the coffin, um, and it was reported that way. It's funny to go read old Wall Street Journal articles or Financial Times articles about it, and uh, you know they'll write things like Sweden is will be the first nation to voluntarily go behind the Iron Curtain and stuff like that. So <laughs> the the idea was basically um, was to have companies pay a new tax. Uh, basically a, a tax on corporate profits, but instead of paying the tax in money like they do now, they would pay it in shares and then the shares would go to this fund. And, you know, you can kind of spreadsheet this out and recognize that uh, over a certain period of time, if they're issuing new shares to cover their tax liabilities, eventually the existing shareholders will be diluted out and the uh, fund, which in this case would be run by unions or maybe the government, um, the the fund would now own, you know, controlling stakes in all Swedish companies, at least the larger ones. And then you would have a kind of a, a full blown socialism at that point. So a, a version of funds socialism or social wealth fund socialism Um now, I mean, as I've pointed out, uh, you know, as much as people fixate on this plan and it's kind of uh, taken on a life of its own in uh, sort of wonky socialist circles, you know, Norway has basically done this, <laughs> um, but they did it in a different way. And they did it in a sort of for pragmatic reasons related to managing an oil windfall. Um, and so it seems to have maybe have been a slightly less... Uh, less uh you know inspiring and maybe people also just really like the idea of uh what they call a script tax like that is a really cool idea and so they gravitate to meidner for that but yeah i mean ultimately it's just that it's like well look uh we have all these companies and if you're saying you want the public to own them or you want the workers to own them or whatever uh yeah you know on the one hand you could do like a revolution and all that i i suppose uh or you know you could just change the ownership of the shares of the company and you could actually do that through kind of pretty generic open market type transactions if you really wanted to and that plan showed a way to do that and you know they did actually implement a version of it after uh uh olaf won uh his uh, election there in what was it, the 80s or something? And uh, they ended up, I think it was 6% or maybe 9% of Swedish uh, corporate equity ended up going into these funds. Uh, but then the conservatives won and they they put an end to it. Um, but interestingly, they didn't get rid of these the shares that were collected this way. They, they used them as endowments for research institutes. Uh, interesting. Um, so... Matt, I have just a couple more questions for you. We're uh, running out of time here, but um, you know we're 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 looking down the barrel of a you know yet another presidential election, um, and you know there's a lot of focus on Trump, you know maybe doing like a fascist dictatorship. Uh, but my question for you is, you know, 
what are you thinking in terms of like policy asks? You know, like there's this whole huge bucket of stuff in the Build Back Better agenda, and almost all of it got cut out in terms of welfare state. We did do a great big climate bill. That was pretty good. But, you know, the child tax, tax credit thing, that expired. We had this uh, really janky paid leave system. That didn't make it. Um, you know, uh, we did do a minor reform to Obamacare. Well, actually a pretty big one, but but it was still just like shoring up the structure of Obamacare. So what would your sort of wish list be, would you reckon? Would you go for for the, the bring back the child tax credit or, or an actual child allowance like Mitt Romney has proposed or try to fix the paid leave thing, federalized Medicaid? What, what are you thinking about? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question, um, you know, because all the same stuff that we would have been pushing uh, in the Bernie campaigns, which I was a participant in, you know, all that stuff is still available. You know, <laughs> we didn't really resolve any of those things. So, you know, on the one hand, you can just say, well, it's just the usual stuff. Um, I, But I guess a more practical question is kind of like, well, assessing the winds of the politics uh, of the moment, like what what should he focus on uh, of the available options? Um, and, you know, one thing comes to mind as a real low hanging fruit thing is the free school lunch situation. We had that for a couple of years in the pandemic <clears throat> and apparently it polls very well. And eight states have done it since the pandemic ended. So zero states did it before the pandemic. Then we had it federally for a couple of years. And then rather than repeal it, eight states did it, you know, themselves. So, you know, there's a kind of proof of concept there. It's also really easy to do. It costs almost nothing. Um, you know, just these meals cost like $4. Um, and a lot of people are already on free school meals. Um, so something like that. You know, if you want to sort of talk about something really small bore, that's that's a pretty easy one to do. You don't run into the weird, you know, you don't run into the mansion thing where he's worried, I guess, about them spending on drugs. Um, I mean, you still technically should because, you know, if they don't have to pay for their kids lunch, they will have more money to spend on drugs. But for whatever reason, that kind of uh, fungibility point doesn't uh it doesn't strike people who <laughs> think like that. They don't ever like if you give them money, they're going to spend it on drugs. You're like, OK, so could we uh, give them some food vouchers? Like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. You're like, yeah, but if they don't have to buy food anymore, then that's the same as having more money. Right. And that they don't you just don't go there with them. They're they're cool pretending not to understand that. Um, so that would be one. That's a low hanging fruit. I mean, Paid leave is low-hanging fruit because anything where you're just kind of moving some money around is low-hanging fruit. The hard stuff is when you actually have to set up a new service, you know? So like childcare, for instance, is probably the hardest the hardest thing that would have been in Build Back Better, for instance, because you have to actually go up and build all these centers and hire all these people. And you're probably going to have to increase wages. And like that's just, that's an undertaking. It's a real productive undertaking. But things like child tax credit, we just send out money or free school meals where we're already providing the meals. You just replace the fees with some taxes or paid leave where you just, you know, send some people some money when they have kids. Like all that stuff's pretty easy and, you know, not that expensive. And so I guess that's where I would what I would gravitate towards. I, the, I guess the only downside there is just kind of 
well, you tried that with Build Back Better and it failed. So do we just kind of put that on the back burner and say, well, that's not really doable. Like, how do we just go back to Congress and try that again? Surely we got to, it's got to be something else. Yeah. I don't know. What are your thoughts? <laughs> well, one, one difference is if, if you did have a trifecta, which I think is, is unlikely, but not impossible. That is to say you, you have the house and the Senate and the presidency, um, that would not include Joe Manchin this time. Um, He's retiring and, you know, probably best case scenario, Democrats would have 50 uh, seats if if uh, Sherrod Brown holds on in, in um, Ohio and um, uh, John Tester holds on in Montana. Both of those pretty Trumpy states, but not not out of not out of the question, certainly. Um, and yeah, it does seem like at least the the, the child tax credit, um, you know, since it was one vote, everybody else, even cinema, who also probably won't be there, by the way. Uh, even, um, she was on board. And so that could be a gimme. Um, it would, (laughs) the, you know, again, the, the, the dynamics are always very complicated and difficult to sort of figure out. Um, but it certainly seems like, you know, if you're going to do that, you'd have like the sort of nonprofits behind you and, you know, like the whole party was sort of uh, agreed that this was like a good thing to do. It was, it was pro equity and, and all <laughs> yeah, that yeah, sort yeah. of thing. No, it got, got picked up in the NGO world, you know, like as soon as you start seeing people, you know, calculate things like, you know, uh, you know, uh, racial distribution of the dollars or something. And you're like, all right, good. We're good now. All right. Well, uh, I think that's about all we have time for. Any last final questions from from you, Alexi? Um, yeah, let oh, me. Oh, that's great. And um, thanks to you, Matt, for coming on the show. Everybody can head over to peoplespolicyproject.org, uh, I think, to check out um, his work and the collaborations we've done um, on occasion. 